I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast with Jack Miller. Keep up the good work. Hi, I'm Zane Emerson. And I'm Jack Miller. And it's been quite some time since I've interviewed you, hasn't it? It has been a while, it seems like. It seems like a lot of stuff has happened. Absolutely, a lot of stuff has happened. I mean, spring break came, that was no... (laughs) Just joking, of course. (laughs) COVID-19 pandemic has hit, and that's been a major thing. That's going to be a big theme of this interview. Right, we are currently in our family on day 38 of our self-quarantine. We started on Friday, the 13th of March, and you have not seen any human beings other than your family in that whole time well i've done like google meetings and not but not in person oh right no person that i know in the flesh for 38 days oh man has it been 38 days 38 days oh man all right well we're gonna jump into the serious politics stuff because i know that's what you guys subscribe for but um first i'm just gonna ask a uh leading question how's life going during the pandemic i kind of know because i'm with you all the time tell the viewers at home How's life? Well, I have to say that I consider myself to be very fortunate that I have people around me who don't drive me crazy, and that includes you, and that I have a stable job, and that I can, in fact, do my job very easily from home. I haven't had to drive very much. I go to the grocery store once a week. When I went, the last time I went to the grocery store, I noticed that I have three quarters of a tank of gas, and the last time I got gas was right before we went into (laughs) self-quarantine. So I, I'm really happy to not be driving. It saves me a lot of time. Uh, I have time to really kind of just slow down and be reflective. And I consider myself to be very privileged to have a secure job and to have time for reflection and to be able to be a beneficiary of what is happening with the pandemic lockdown and not to have it add to my stress. And I know that's not true for everybody, but I also know that for those of us that it is true for, it's something I think we should embrace. And I'm, I'm happily embracing the slower pace, the fact that I don't have to drive anybody to school. I don't I myself have to drive to work. I can organize my life the way I want to. I can lecture to the iPhone camera whenever I want, not simply at the exact time. So I'm, I'm really feeling pretty happy about this situation, even though I know it's also a huge disruption for the world. There's a lot of economic and health insecurity going around and, and swirling around us. I'm very happy that I get to be happy in this time. So I'm going to embrace it. Instead of feeling guilty about feeling happy, I'm going to embrace it. And I'm going to then also do everything I can to try to make this a better time for other people 
and to be strong and ready for when we come out and there are people who are feeling exhausted and beaten down. Yeah, that's great. I've been feeling that too a bit. Kind of slow, life is slowing down a little bit. I kind of get to take stock of what I really am grateful for. I kind of feel that feel that same way that you are. Right. And what's important and what's not important. I, I'm really interested in seeing what's going to happen when people get to go out and about. How much of what we used to think was just a necessary part of a busy modern life is going to now seem optional. That will be an interesting thing to find out. We've talked a lot about our personal life, but okay. I'm going to move move us into the theme of this podcast, which is the pothole problem and COVID-19 and how those two were kind of interacting or how that how the pandemic kind of changes all that. So just as a reminder, uh, what is the pothole problem again? All right. So the pothole problem has, you know, a number of different forms, but it's mostly a generic negativity bias where what people see and remember and react to in the political world are mostly the things that annoy them or that the government does poorly. So you're driving down the road, you hit a pothole, you go, goddamn government can't even fix the pothole. But you're not likely anytime you're driving down a nice smooth road to say, oh, hey, thank you, the government for this nice smooth road. The pothole problem is an emphasis on the negative and a fundamental reaction to politics and the government as things that are problematic, broken, outrageous. One of the common views of politicians is that they're power hungry, they're liars, they're weaselly, they're disconnected from regular humans. There's information out there that backs up all of those perceptions. There's also plenty of information out there that undermines all of those perceptions. But the pothole problem is that we don't either take in or remember or fundamentally respond very strongly to the positive impressions that we might get from what's out there, we really tend to just react to and remember the negative things. This is a quick aside. I noticed sometimes on Oregon highways, they're nice and smooth. They have a sign that says, you are tax dollars at work, perhaps to draw your attention to actually how the Oregon government's doing a good job of fixing the kind of bad pothole problem that's throughout Oregon, literally. Well, those signs are exactly intended to overcome the perception problem that the pothole problem puts in the government's face, which is you have to actually tell people what you're doing that's good for them. And it's clear from those signs, though, that there's like it's a desperate measure. Like, see, we're, we're really doing something good with your tax dollars. They're fighting a perception that taxes are wasteful and that the government doesn't do a good job. So uh, that's a great observation. Those signs are in fact an attempt to push back against the pothole problem. I'm not sure how successful they are, but you know, without those signs, there would be even less information out there for people to, to latch onto, to be reminded that roads don't just exist. They were built and they aren't just built. They're built by the government. <laughs> I like that. They're not just built people. Someone's got to do it. And they're not built by corporations. You know, right. a lot of the stuff that gives us benefits and pleasures in our lives do come to us from the private sector. And it's easy to just kind of walk around assuming that all good things come through entrepreneurship and private industry and private endeavor. And that is not the case. So I think now we get to the million dollar question. How has COVID-19 and this pandemic changed the pothole problem? One of the few times in my adult life when attention is focused on the government in a way where people are looking to the government. They're looking to our political leaders. They're looking to our appointed officials, our experts with an actual positive awareness of how important those people are and a desire for the government to do something that helps as opposed to looking at the government as a problem and an annoyance and a source of taxation and scandals and screw ups. There's a sense that, oh, 
this is what the government is for. The government is here for situations just like COVID-19. We also then get more information than we normally get that is telling us and showing us what the government is doing for us. And so I think that it's providing an opportunity for people to see the political world, for people to see their elected officials, for people to see their government in a different light and in a potentially, I think currently in the moment, a more positive light and in a potentially long-term change that people say, oh, right, that's right. The government doesn't just screw up and take our taxes. We want them to be ready with masks and ventilators and a plan and we want there to be top-notch experts who understand the spread of disease and who understand how to mitigate that we actually want that positive side of governance that exists all the time i mean those people are all there's so much being done by the government all the time but the pothole problem prevents us from seeing all the positive governance that's going on and right now with attention riveted on one specific issue COVID-19 taking up almost all the bandwidth in the media ecosystem, people are actually seeing government at work for them as opposed to against them. I can't help but think that that's going to have at least a short-term change in political attitudes. So you say that more attention is being drawn to the government, which I think is generally true. I mean, we there's daily press briefings. There's a lot of attention on what's going on. My question is, are, is that making us think, oh, the government's doing great? Or we think, oh, the government's not doing so well. Like, how well is the government doing, do you think, at responding to the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, you know, I think that the thing that's available to us now is a set of dueling impressions that give us balance in our perception of politics. Normally, what we see in the news is the scandalous, the outrageous, the screw-ups, and also politicians and elected officials and, you know, media figures trying to ramp up people's outrage, we're still seeing that. That has not gone away. But we're, what we're also getting is we're getting a bunch of mayors and governors and health experts who we never get to see. How often does the governor of Oregon get watched by a million Oregonians or paid attention to? Even the governor of California and New York big states, how often do they have a daily platform? How often do health experts get to go on television at all, much less daily, and actually have a lot of people watch them? And how often does it happen that those people are actually on television, not on some kind of horrible panel where there's this so-called balance where we get somebody from the Democratic Party and somebody from the Republican Party with their different perspectives and they argue about it? We don't often get this kind of presentation. And so what we actually are getting is a different kind of balance than we normally do. We normally get a lot of negativity and outrage and fear-mongering and argumentation. And when we get balance, we get it just in terms of ideological balance. Right now, we're seeing two different kinds of presentation. I think that the difference between what we're seeing coming out of the White House and what we're seeing coming out of a lot of governor's mansions provides a contrast. It allows Americans to say, oh, okay, these are two different styles insofar as you feel like your governor or your mayor is doing a really good job keeping the people of your state or city safe promoting good measures to flatten the curve, really raising public spirit and keeping people unified, then we say, oh, that's available to us. Because normally that stuff's boring. Honestly, the things that people are now paying attention to in the COVID-19 times, under normal circumstances, would be stupendously boring. No one's going to watch somebody from the Center for Disease Control for more than a couple minutes 
under normal circumstances. And now people are watching it, they're reading articles, they're listening to information come through podcasts and through radio broadcasts that they would never ever listen to because because the stakes are high. We want to know what the CDC has to say. We want to know what the Portland school board is doing about schools and about our children's education. We want to know what the health experts in the Oregon Department of Health are deciding and doing and why. I think people are being presented with a different type of information to consume and a different, more than just a different type of information, a different style of presentation. We're used to seeing people who benefit from amping up outrage and we're still seeing some of that, but now we're also getting people who are attempting to tell us hard truths, people who are attempting to calm us down, people who are attempting to actually get us reliable, useful information. Many people are wanting that. And under normal circumstances, we don't. We want to be entertained and to be outraged and to be surprised or whatever all the things that drive an entertainment style of media presentation. And right now people are just like, just tell me the truth. Tell me what I have to do. Tell me how I can keep my family safe, how I can not feel so insecure. So there's a craving for a different kind of presentation. And, that, and it's very specific to what's going on. It's not going to last. What may last, however, is the appetite for it. Not just the appetite for this, but the sense of balance that, okay, the government screws up and politicians lie and people pump up outrage and there's all kinds of stuff in the world that's going on that I hate. But also there are people out there who work hard who are trying to keep me safe and protected and healthy. No one's ever going to look at grocery store clerks the same again. People may never look at elected officials the same way again because they have this memory of, oh, I actually looked to the mayor of my city for guidance and leadership and unity. When that In the past, all I looked to the mayor was, was like, well, how are you screwing up? You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. Doing a little shift here, like how well do you think the government is responding on the policy side to the pandemic? Do you think their policies are strong enough or good enough or doing what needs to be done? That's it's a really good question, but I'm going to just deflect that question and say, I really don't have the expertise to be able to answer that. And I also think that we don't know yet at this point in time, it's the middle of April, we don't really know yet how effective the measures that are being taken are. What I can say is that it does appear as though the people who are making our health policies and our economic policies are really paying attention to what is going to work, what is necessary. They are doing what elected officials and appointed officials often don't do is make hard choices. Because under normal circumstances, you can kind of kick the hard choices down the road. Right now, kicking the hard choices down the road is actually problematic. So what we're seeing is elected officials, particularly listening to their health experts and making tough decisions. You know, if you have to close the school system for your entire state for the rest of the school year, that's a really hard choice because you know that you're burdening families. You know that you're creating a potential educational gap for your population. Doing it is a hard choice. And so I cannot speak to the success of the policies, but what I can speak to is the seriousness with which 
policy choices are being made right now, the sense that hard choices have to be made, and then also elected officials looking straight into the camera and looking, but also beyond the camera into the eyes of the, of the public and telling people things they don't necessarily want to hear. Nobody wants to hear that there's going to be 200,000 deaths in America in the next year due to this disease. Under normal circumstances, politicians and their appointed experts would do everything they could to avoid telling those hard truths to people. And right now they're actually having the guts to do what is really necessary. So I'm going to say that I have a high level of approval, not of course, for every single person out there speaking to the public and not for every elected official, but in general, I feel like the people who are running our state and local systems of government get really high marks for being brave, for making hard choices, for telling difficult truths, and for probably working their butts off constantly to even to stay apprised of the important information that helps them make these hard decisions. You may want to defer this next question I have, but if you were president of the United States, are there any measures you can think of that you would push for that you don't think are being done or anything you can think of? You know, I would love to be able to answer that question because if I could answer that question, that would mean that I would have all the information available to somebody at that position. And I would love to have all that information available because as as a self-quarantined regular consumer of news, it's hard to find all the things I want to know about. Are we flattening the curve? How well are we building up our healthcare resources? Where are the places that we're still seeing stresses on the system and uh, infection rates that are problematic? I can't tell you because I don't have the information that's available. I do think that one of the effects of this is that People voted for Donald Trump because they wanted a disruptor. I mean, there were a lot of reasons to vote for Donald Trump. Some people wanted voted for Donald Trump because they wanted to put conservatives on the Supreme Court. Some people voted for Donald Trump because they couldn't imagine a woman in office. There are a lot of reasons, but I think a, a decent chunk of people wanted a disruptor. And I completely understand that urge. Like, I, don't, I won't judge people who vote for a president to be a disruptor. But voting for a disruptor is, I would say, one of the symptoms of the pothole problem. You can see what's wrong and you kind of want to explode it with somebody who's just even more wrong than the thing that's wrong. I don't expect Donald Trump to be any different than he is. I don't expect somebody who isn't prepared to deal with a situation where you have to make hard choices and where you actually have to look in the camera and tell people hard things and where you might actually have to say, I made a mistake or I screwed up. I don't expect him to be any different than he is. What I hope is that people will look at the presidency differently and say, what's more important than somebody in that office who makes me feel good, who makes me feel like my outrage is being expressed or makes me feel like the policies that I want have a chance of being you know, taken across the finish line. They look at the presidency and they say, is this person able to do the hard parts of the job? I'm hoping that that will be a perception shift in how voters evaluate presidential candidates. I don't think it will be long-term, to be honest. I think that the presidency, it's too, it's too easy to look at that and say, I want somebody in there that makes me feel good, as opposed to somebody who can do the hard parts of the job. Because the hard parts of the job, for the most part, we're not aware of them. That's sort of the flip side of the pothole problem is we don't realize how hard governance really is. At the higher levels, it gets harder and harder. I mean, the presidency is really an almost an undoable job, in my opinion. If you look at all of the things that that person is expected to do, of course, there's nobody. There, it would take a superhuman to have all those different skills. And then that person would also have to be able to be a master campaigner to get elected for the job in the first place. You know, if I were president, I would be looking at the camera saying, please think in the future about how important it is to have somebody who you would want at the podium in the worst possible time.
that might be something that happens as a slight shift in our political culture is that we look at the presidency differently. You have no idea how amazing you just segue into my next question, because my next question, I think a lot of people are actually wondering this. Do you think this situation is affecting President Trump's re-election chances or prospects? And in what way do you think so? Well, it is definitely going to have an impact. And the direction remains to be seen because there's still plenty of time for the federal government to do a really good job of, one, making sure that the fewest amount of people die from this as possible, and two, prevent the economic crisis that we're facing from becoming a deep recession. Do I think that the Trump administration has the chops to be able to pull off that kind of rescue? I don't know, like up in the air. My tendency would be to think no. I would say this election is now more than ever going to be a referendum on the Trump administration's response to COVID-19 and the economic crisis that was probably coming anyway. Like we were headed for a recession, but this is a very, very serious recession. And it could either be short and shallow, or it could be deep and long. And by November, we won't know how long it is because that's not many months between now and then, but we'll have a sense of how likely it is to be deep and long by October. You know, re-elections of presidents are often a referendum on that presidency. And they're a referendum often on how people feel in that moment their lives are. Ronald Reagan, when he campaigned for re-election in 84, he said, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And that was just explicitly acknowledging what's true of presidential re-elections, which is that's how people are going to vote. A presidential re-election is always to some extent or another a referendum on the administration. In this particular case, I think the referendum is being narrowed to march to october performance of the trump administration and one of the ways in which that's actually good for donald trump is that anything that he's done up to this point that has alienated people that has made people dissatisfied with the kind of disruptor he is or has just created more anxiety is essentially erased and he got a fresh start in march got off to a bumpy start with that fresh start in March. Uh, and I don't think he actually realized that it was a fresh start. And it was probably unclear to most people that it was, okay, everything that happens from now on is the all that people are going to be thinking about when they vote in November. But that's the case. And so it narrows his task. If he and his administration can you know, make this a shallow and short recession and can do whatever it takes to support all of the efforts that the states and local governments are doing to keep the death toll low, then people are going to say, okay, I guess this is a competent administration. And they got us through the worst crisis of our lifetimes, the most deeply threatening, like even compared to 9-11, this is something that's striking every single community. And if people can say, okay, I guess this administration is competent at making this uh, less bad than it could have been, then there's going to be some wind is back. There's still an awful lot of people who are going to be dissatisfied with Trump and are going to vote against him no matter what he does between now and November. But this election is going to be won and lost at that margin of whether or not people feel like the administration has made this less bad. And that's an opportunity for a president to focus. Just do it. Just make it less bad and you get to win and you get to have four more years. I mean, if we had a more competent president, he would actually be able to do that. But... 
it's kind of funny because he's he's Donald Trump. He's probably going to mess it up somehow and then lose election and get people to realize what was really true all along. Possibly, though. Plus, I'm by the way, I'm totally betraying my biases. I don't care. I don't like Trump. But anyway. But here's here's one of the interesting things, and this relates to the pothole problem. Let's say that the administration had done a tremendous job at stockpiling masks and ventilators and being prepared for a pandemic and had done all the things that we now know not only did Trump not do, but that he actually gutted the efforts from the previous administration to be prepared for this kind of thing. Let's say that the Trump administration had had been proactive and prepared the way we would love government to be. That would mean that people might not have such a tragic sense of what's going on right now. Like when the job is done well, when you're driving down the smooth highway, you don't necessarily remember even when you see the sign that says your taxpayer dollars at work, that it was the government. And so you don't necessarily get that warm, fuzzy feeling. So the lack of preparedness and the lack of proactive measures created a crisis that could then be potentially beneficial if you then pivot quickly and do a really good job at addressing a crisis that in a, in a way was a result of your own inaction. Though, honestly, I'm going to say, I think that even the most proactive, well-prepared federal government we would still be facing a pretty significant quarantine and lockdown. We would still be facing a pretty significant economic disruption. There's only so much that even the most competent government can do to prepare for a global pandemic of the kind that we're seeing right now. We know some of the specific things the Trump administration did that made it not ready for this and made it screwed up and flat-footed in its initial response. That lack of skill has actually ironically created the opportunity to look really good to the American people between April and October of 2020. Uh-oh, Dad, I think you may have just created a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Donald Trump purposely hobbled the government to then respond better to it to make himself seem amazing and get reelected. I don't. I, I think you don't know what you've just done. <laughs> no, you know, almost anything that anybody says can create an opening for a conspiracy theory, but I appreciate you noticing the exact contours of what that conspiracy theory is going to look like. Yeah. We've talked about the Republican side, the Trump side of the election, but now I kind of want to pivot to the Democratic side. So Biden is the Democratic nominee. He's, it's, it'll be official later. What do you think his strategy will be slash should be to capitalize or try and gain back ground during this time? You are really an expert today to asking me questions that I just can't answer. Uh, uh, and I will tell you why I can't answer this particular question. I have not been paying the level of attention to electoral politics that I normally would be in the spring of a presidential election year. One, I'm spending a lot of time not consuming news and trying to do what I said earlier and sort of be reflective and slow down. But also the COVID-19 story has taken up so much of the media bandwidth that even with a super consequential presidential election going on, there's very little coverage of that. And I, like, I would have to dig deeper than normal to even find out what's going on with the Biden campaign. Whereas if this were a traditional April of a presidential election year and we had a presumptive Democratic nominee, we would know much more about what was going on. What I think that Biden has to do or should do to win this election relates back to what I said earlier, which is to play up the fact that when voters think about the president, they need to be thinking about a steady hand and a competent, experienced person and then portraying himself as that steady hand. And I think that that plays into some of his strengths anyway, which is he's been around for a really long time. He's been involved in an awful lot of policy battles, all the stuff that actually can hurt you as a presidential campaign. Like you have a record, you have experience, you have all kinds of stuff to to, uh, people to paint targets on your back. If he and his campaign can make this an election about competency and expertise and experience and a steady, calm hand, 
then he has a big advantage. And I, I think that the situation is going to make more American voters pay attention, not to, well, where do you stand on healthcare for all? Where do you stand on climate change? Where do you stand on taxes and environmental deregulation? The normal big ticket issues that define the way presidential campaigns position themselves will really be on the back burner. And it's more like, how would you have prevented this? How would you have dealt with this? Are you a reliable person? And presidential elections are always way more about character than about issues anyway. Even though campaigns, they talk about issues constantly, really the voters are looking at temperament and character. In this case, we're seeing a model for what a president, we would like a president to be. And many of the governors are providing us with very clear examples of what we would love in a chief executive. We're seeing an awful lot of people who are making tough decisions, telling hard truths to the public, being clear and direct and following expert advice and not fear-mongering or politicking off of outrage, but actually telling people the hard truth. So the Biden campaign, this is a long answer to a relatively straightforward question, but I can only assume that the Biden campaign is going to try to seize the opportunity to turn this into a competency election. And to the extent that it's a referendum on Trump's behavior between March and October of 2020, all the Biden campaign can do is just hope that Trump is Trump. And, you know, people are always saying, let Trump be Trump. Well, they're just like, yeah, let Trump be Trump, because we can believe that Trump being Trump is not going to make the American people feel secure and well taken care of. And in a two-party election, then they'll just vote for the other guy. I'm going to end with one last question, kind of looking into the future. You've touched on this before in previous questions, but I kind of want to coalesce all now at the end. Do you think this pandemic and how do you think this pandemic will affect like politics or the political system or any of that stuff in a major way or in the long term, if at all? I do think it has the potential to change the expectations of the American people for their government and for their elected officials. I am not certain it's going to produce that change, but I do believe that there's a, the potential for some of the sort of gnarlier edges of the pothole problem to get filed off, right? For people to have a more ambient walking around balanced sense that, okay, the government takes our taxes and screws up and politicians lie to us, but also those taxes buy valuable things that we all rely on every day. And many politicians are good-hearted public servants who make tough decisions and listen to experts and do the best that they can. If we get a greater balance in our public perception of politicians and the actual act of governing, I think that'll be a really good silver lining for this global pandemic. It'll happen in the short term. I have little doubt that this appreciation for government expertise and for health experts and for the fact that it's important for the government to be prepared with healthcare resources for crises like this, I have little doubt that it will have a short-term impact. Two, three years from now, that's the real question. Are people still going to be thinking in a balanced way about what the government does for them as well as what the government does to them? Or are we going to revert to the, I would say, default mode of the American political culture, which is to see primarily what the government does to us and very little what the government does for us? And for outrage and fear-mongering and anger to, to take their place in the center of American politics again, I, I just really don't know. I, th I think that the weight, the gravity of our standard political culture, which is 
in a way, fundamentally anti-authoritarian. We look at the government more as a a threat and a problem, and that's partly the pothole problem, and it's partly the American political culture. I just think that the gravity of that is so strong that I can't be too hopeful that we're going to have a long-term change. But I also do think that this is a a once-in-a-century event, and it's potentially fundamentally transformative in people's perceptions of their relations to other humans, their relationships to the government, their expectations. At a trivial level, it's possible that this is the death of the handshake. It's possible that people just won't shake hands anymore. While that's a trivial thing, uh, the handshake is such a central part of our culture. The handshake as the standard way that two adults greet each other in most contexts, that could just be gone. And I think it's totally realistic for the handshake to disappear. If that's the case, then profound changes in other less sort of trivial areas are certainly possible. But I am definitely not going to make any predictions. And I'm going to stick to my mantra of the last couple years, which is we'll see. Only time will tell. And even time might not tell that much. It's going to take a lot of time. It'll be really interesting to look back from the point of view of 2030 and see what the 20s were like as a result of this. There's there's no doubt in my mind that the COVID-19 is shaping the politics and culture of the first half of the 20s. It'll be interesting to see what kind of legs that transformation has. All right. Well, there you go. This has been an amazing interview. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Before I let Zane go back to whatever it is that he's been doing during all this free time that he has, I want to wrap up the episode today just by saying that I appreciate everybody continuing to listen. I've had some feedback from listeners thanking me for continuing through the pandemic. And to me, it's actually even easier because I have more time. And I luckily, again, have the resources to continue interviewing via phone interview. All of my phone interview guests have been tremendous, and I'm really thankful to them. And as always, I'm going to go out with a song but I'm going to go out with a song I've used before. Episode one of The Pothole Problem featured Sticking It to the Man by Greg Weinger. I think that it's time to bring that song back. So here it is, Sticking It to the Man. Woke up the other day and I was the man After years of getting away with whatever I can Look my buddies in the eyes Said fellas it's been nice But I know what y'all been up to That ain't right Now when you're sticking it to the man You're sticking it to me I ain't taking it in the can Won't turn the other cheek Get your collective asses in line Or tonight I'll have you working over time when you're sticking it to the man you're sticking it to me those two hour lunches are a thing of the past and you'll find my coffee stained dockers out in the trash now you see I'm dressed for success my shirt is tucked and my pants are pressed my mustache is trimmed my hair is all compressed when you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me. I ain't taking it in the can, I'll turn the other cheek. Check your time cards if you're wise. Got both of my eyes on those office supplies. When you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me. 
music was never in my plan to wreck somebody's day. Making decisions ain't fun. Right or wrong, I'll answer what I've done. But I had to make some layoff cuts, and the time has come. So when you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me. I ain't taking it in the can, won't turn the other sheep. Some folks say it's a sin, but I ain't sold out. I bought in when you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me. When you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me.